Have you ever thought, if I only had a job that fits what I'm good at, or I wish someone would just hand me a plan for personal development, or maybe how can I help people tap into their strengths? If you've ever had these thoughts or questions, then have I got an opportunity for you. This November, the Typology Institute is going to be releasing a new course, the Enneagram in the Workplace. The course covers things like how to recognize and work through your stress at work by type, important skills for leadership by type, why your coworkers act and think the way they do, what each Enneagram type excels at and where their blind spots are in the workplace, practical ways to encourage others based on their type, and how to use the Enneagram to grow as a leader and unify any team of people. The Enneagram in the workplace is split into nine courses, one for each type, and you can take all of them that reflect the team you work with. With the Enneagram in the workplace, you'll learn the best ways to interact with all the different personalities around you. Take the Enneagram in the workplace and transform how you live and work. Sign up for the waitlist at typologyinstitute.com slash work to get a special offer when the course arrives sometime this November. Go to typologyinstitute.com slash work to get a special offer on the course today. Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, your co-host. We're so happy to have you here with us today. We've got another great show, a great guest. She is and type nine with a wing one and her husband is a seven wing eight and she has a brand new book it is called reframe your shame and she has done a lot of work around recovery because she has her own story of recovery that she brings to the table today i know you're gonna love this guest and i'm talking about irene rollins she is senior pastor of i5 along with her husband jimmy you're going to love this show. Glad you're here. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. And now here is the host of our show, Ian Crown. Hey, Typology Tribe, welcome to this week's episode. This is a great one. I'm here with my new friend, Enneagram 9, Irene Rollins, author of the new book, Reframe Your Shame, Experience Freedom from What Holds You Back. Irene Rollins, welcome to Typology. Woo! Yay. Thank you so much for having me. So great to meet you guys. I know. And as I mentioned to you earlier, I am so juiced to have a nine on. And I just want to remind people of two things. Number one, I'm married to a nine. I have a daughter who's a nine. And so I love nines, right? And we don't get enough nines on the show. And maybe people don't realize this, but a lot of authors who come on the show tend to be threes, sevens, and eights who are in the aggressive stance, meaning these people are assertive and go-getters and like just, we got to sell this book and blah, blah, blah. And so when I get ones, twos, fives, sixes, and nines on the show, I am thrilled right now. And obviously, we get a lot of fours here in Nashville who are artists. So, you know, we, we, we tend to get a lot of those too. I'm so pumped to have a nine on the show today. And, and 
So it's it's going to be a real win. You know, we were talking a little earlier about your work with the Enneagram and how it's played a, a significant role in your ministry and in your life. Let's just start there. Talk to us about it. Absolutely. So I started the Enneagram journey probably years ago. Gosh, I can't even remember how many years, probably seven years ago-ish. And I was pastoring at the time. I was a senior pastor leading alongside my husband just south of Baltimore. And I used the Enneagram to help my staff. We did small group study around it. I tried to get it into all of the messages when I would uh, speak from the platform wow. because I, I was really into the self-awareness piece and the personal growth and development. I'm also a certified emotional intelligence coach. So as a result, I think that self-awareness is a huge part of our emotional intelligence. So wherever I could sneak in the Enneagram, I did it. And I do it even in my marriage ministry with my husband. When we're speaking, we talk a lot about the Enneagram in marriage as well. Mm. I want to let people know that the name of your marriage ministry ministry is two equals one. And we're going to swing back to that in a moment. That's going to be really important. I want to know what the heck an emotional intelligence coach is. I mean, I think I know. I mean, I know Daniel Goldman's work. I know a lot about the world of EQ in the corporate setting in particular. Tell folks what emotional intelligence is. So emotional intelligence is our ability to be self-aware, understand our emotions and manage them in moderation and appropriately, as well as being aware and understanding the emotions that are going on in someone else and being able to manage them, have boundaries around that for ourselves and being able to navigate really um, working with someone else's emotional state. So it deals a lot with self-awareness, stress management, our ability to seek personal growth and development, our interpersonal skills, things like that. So it's really about understanding your inner world and managing it externally. So I believe that it's true that your EQ, your emotional quotient, will get you further in life and in your career and grant you more access to happiness, like a true, happy, and joyful life than your IQ will. So they say that its studies show that your IQ will only get you so far in your career. It's your emotional intelligence that will get you further. That is so true. And that's been, you know, a focus of my corporate work. And it seems to me, you know, obviously you can't think your way to a good relationship, right? Because that's not the plane. And and you can't even think your way to great decisions. I'm not saying that your intellect is not involved in the mix. What I am saying is that contrary to what most people think, decisions are made emotionally. <laughs> like ultimately, they're an emotional and you know, I actually have to do something this week with somebody and I was reminded by a friend, don't get mired in the facts. Stick to the feelings. Don't get into he said, she said, you did this, I did that, you know, blah, blah, blah. Stay away from the facts. Stick to the feelings. That's why I was partly curious about this. I, so I want to talk to you as a nine for a second. Sure. Anger is a big emotion. It is a mm-hmm. big dog. Nines struggle to make contact with anger. And obviously, they struggle to work with conflict avoidance. 
So I just mm-hmm. want to know, how does an emotional intelligence coach, who's a nine, what have you learned about anger and how do you as a nine deal with it? Number one, I have come to find out that anger is an acceptable emotion, <laughs> mm. that I am allowed to feel anger and others are allowed to be angry. And I am, as a nine, becoming more comfortable with being uncomfortable. So Mm. as I learn to allow myself and normalize discomfort, my tendency to react out of my past experience with anger and understanding that, okay, nines want to avoid it at all costs because of that self-awareness, I now have a way forward. I've normalized it. I don't allow it to shut me down. I used to become very small and invisible whenever I would experience someone else expressing their anger, Mm. shut down. And a lot of that had to deal with childhood trauma. So unpacking really how the nine is wired, but then tapping into my shadow, my past, my messages from my childhood. Anger was something that growing up, I had gotten into the pattern of shutting down and being fearful and silent and making myself very small to avoid getting in trouble or the abusive words that would follow the person who was angry with me. So then the nine, I went into people pleasing, perfectionism, performance. If I got straight A's, then I won't get in trouble. If, you know, I just have to be perfect, then I won't get in trouble. I won't experience the emotion of anger. And really along the way, I'm just learning how to allow myself to be angry. Like as long as I'm not out of moderation in it, cussing somebody out, being a boundary violator, (laughs) then I can experience in moderation the emotion of anger and not stuff it and numb it. Because stuffing it and numbing it got me to a bad place, that's for sure. (laughs) Wow. Here's a question I in particular am fascinated with, and I've asked before, of women nines of color. Okay? Mm -hmm. We live in a culture that is so quick to peg the quote-unquote angry black woman. Do you know what I mean? Like, Oh, yes, I do. it's, It's like a stereotype. It's like a slot yes, that, that white people tend to go, oh, just an angry black woman, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so tell me about the journey of a woman of color who is an Enneagram 9 and not only having to deal with trauma and past stuff, but cultural things about mm-hmm. anger. That is such a great question because my experience as a 9 when I was in the unhealthy version of myself, I really was okay with not being assertive because then I wouldn't fit that stereotype and I would Mm. please people culturally in my circles and I would not become that stereotype. But then I'm married to a seven, eight, wing eight, and I um, gave birth to a beautiful daughter who is an eight wing seven. So in my becoming aware of the Enneagram strengths, weaknesses, and all of that, I have been able to successfully, as a parent, I pat myself on the back for this, but coach my daughter into accepting that this is the way she is wired. God created, God made her this way. And she is assertive and strong, and that is good. 
but also she has to balance time and place. This is where emotional intelligence comes in, Hmm. being able to take inventory of who's around her, who's in the room, what her place is, if it's appropriate, and be very careful. She can communicate the very same thing without being explosively angry. Because, you know, the reality is we've had to educate her. You will get labeled as that. And she has in the past experienced Mm. getting labeled as the angry black woman. And she is really not at all. Anyone who knows her knows she's not angry black woman. She just is assertive. And if she believes in something, she communicates about it. But when she was going to college in the South and the folks she was around were not used to hearing Someone raise their hand and say, hey, I, you know what? I don't agree with that. The Bible is chock full of stories of women in ministry. I don't agree. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love that about her, though. So, yeah, yeah I, it's a reality dealing with that label. But as I've gotten healthy in my, my nine has said, you know what? There's a way I can assert myself without being walked all over, labeled as angry black woman. So that's where the EQI stuff comes in. I love, 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 because I think one of the things that people don't bake into their calculations enough, regardless of, you know, their ethnicity, their gender, their sexuality, whatever it is, right, is cultural forces and how they either reinforce or dismiss their personality style. Right. Like oh, they, yes. they just think it's family and this. I'm like, oh, don't forget culture. I mean, culture mm-hmm. plays it's a big huge. role in pushing us to certain a term you like and that I like self-defeating behaviors, self-perceptions, yes. all of that stuff that we, we have to really think about a lot. So you work a lot with people. Let's use the word self-defeating again, self-sabotaging, mm-hmm. whatever term we want to use with their habits. What are those for nines? You've mentioned narcotizing. Well, We'll circle back to that because that's a big part of your story. And I, I just want to talk about, and, and also passive aggression and you know just anger, but what are the sure. other kinds of self-defeating habits of nines and how did you begin to work with them? Well, minimizing our issues is a huge one. Mm. Uh, nines like to minimize and just the no talk rule growing up. Speaking of culture, my, I was born in Africa and Zambia. My mom is Zambian. My dad was Caucasian American, was as in they're both gone on to be with Jesus. But being that culturally the norm is children are silent. They are to be seen and not heard. So my lack of assertiveness as a nine was really influenced heavily by culturally like that was shut down. I wasn't supposed to have a voice. Like I couldn't have a voice. If I shared an emotion out loud, that was just culturally not okay. You couldn't express your anger or that you didn't agree. So that particular weakness in my Enneagram 9 really didn't help in my personality kind of getting locked up for years. Mm. I didn't emerge until seven years ago. When I I was living in autopilot, like you say, just completely unaware that I was unaware, ignorant of being ignorant of my true self, and just really fell into being okay with fear, being okay Mm. with not being assertive, being worried, defensive. If I didn't do something perfect, I'm extremely defensive. And that's where shame came in. If I felt 
bad about myself or humiliated because I did something wrong. I couldn't handle it. It was overwhelming to me. It felt like a pain that I wasn't, I couldn't touch because if I touched that, I literally felt like I was going to die. If I touched something that said I am bad, which is the message that shame sends. So I kind of feel like I was set up as a nine to live out my weaknesses. And if God didn't intervene and I didn't just have these moments of rock bottom, these moments of epiphany and awakening where I learned about, you know, how God really wired me and created me and accepted it, Hmm. I would have continued down that self-defeating road the rest of my life, which impacted my self-esteem, my life enjoyment and fulfillment, because I couldn't really be my true self. I couldn't show up as my authentic and true self for people or for myself because I didn't know I was allowed to. Like, I didn't know that was okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. And when, (laughs) when, when, you know, my, I love the Maya Angelou quote from her book, Why the Caged Bird Sing, where she says, I was ignorant of being ignorant until that moment I became aware that of my ignorance. And it's like, wow, those moments where I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not codependent. I'm a nine. (laughs) Like, I'm not, it's not all codependency. Yes, some of it is 100%. I'm fully aware of my codependent behaviors. However, some of the things about me, like being a natural mediator, harmony, peacemaker, those are all God-given things that I was shamed about for so long growing up as being a weak person or like a doormat that people walk all over. And it's, I've embraced it as a strength. So, yeah. Wow. So you're married to a seven, uh, mm-hmm. an assertive type. Nines often marry assertive types. Now, it's interesting. My wife is a nine. I'm a four. So we're both withdrawing types, right? But I have a very assertive side, right? I have a large personality. My wife, before she did her work, merged with that larger personality for a long time. So you use the word emerge, and I oftentimes say with nines that part of the journey is unmerging. Right, unmerging before you know, the, right. the the emerging. Right. So, did you go through a season with Jimmy where you were really merged with him and his life agenda and what he wanted to do, and like you just were the quiet, go along to get along woman? Does that and and actually into the church oh, yes. that could be lauded as being the supportive wife, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of no, that's actually the merging wife, right? Talk to us about that. Yes. So there's no playbook to how to be a pastor's wife. So when I said yes to ministry and yes to marrying my husband, I was coming into a world that I knew nothing about. I grew up Catholic. And so all I knew personality-wise was to be, to submit, to, you know, merge with him. I felt like my life, my existence, the message that I believed is that I existed to help others and make everybody else's life easier, never bring stress to them, make Jimmy shine. So I merged with his call, the call of God on his life, didn't acknowledge my own, and was that supportive wife. So on the outside at church, we were both working for his parents, and uh, you know okay, he was titled. Co- okay, this is going to get complicated. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yes. 
So it's kind of like Jimmy had the title executive pastor at their church. And then when we relaunched the church, he was senior pastor. But really, who was running the church? It was me <laughs> behind the scenes. <laughs> like, because I did, I spent my entire life just trying to make him look amazing and wow. uh, just be that supportive wife. And I could do it. But for way too long, I ignored myself and my own call and my own things. And let me tell you something, since seven years ago, because we've been married 23 years, my husband and I, it's been the best seven years ever, which is a whole nother story. And the past seven years, my husband has committed himself and devoted his time and energy into actually the opposite, pushing me forward and helping mm. me realize my dreams and my call. Because once we got healthy and we had those moments of clarity about our temperaments, our personality types, our Enneagram, we realized that I needed to unmerge and become my own person. And as mm. I've evolved into my own person, he's embraced that and wants me to shine. And as grateful as he was for my past support, he's like, I want to be, he, he, he calls himself the first husband. You know, he's like, I'll carry your bags. I'll be, you know, whatever he wants to be my armor bearer. He just wants to commit to giving back what I gave him for all those years. So, mm, man, that's yeah. beautiful. It is. It wasn't beautiful when I was resentful of him, though, because mm. that's yeah, what the nines do. We, yes. you know. What happened seven years ago? Oh, I hit rock bottom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> seven years ago, we were pastoring a church. We were three years into leading this ministry and I was emotionally unaware. I mm. uh, had no idea how much weight the responsibility of leading a church alongside my husband was going to be mm. and didn't know how to deal with my emotional world and really like everyone else's. So I took on all the problems of the church as if it was mine. Can you imagine the weight I was carrying? Wow. And still had kids, three kids, the dogs, the whole nine managing life. And I found myself reintroducing alcohol into my life, just innocently on vacation. And I went from drinking a glass of wine with dinner to anticipating having it on Friday night to binging on Saturday to every day. My dependency increased over a six-year period of time, mm -hmm. and I became in, went into a full-blown alcohol addiction. And I had no clue you know, about addiction. I thought it was just the guy under the bridge with the brown paper bag. And <laughs> I did not know that it could happen to me. Mm. And I rolled out the red carpet for addiction because of the, all the trauma, the lack of self-awareness and lack of emotional intelligence and self-care. So I was blacking out drinking in the evenings. I was a functional alcoholic. So I went to work all day. Everything was fine. And no one knew. <laughs> Ian's doing air quotes for those of you who can't see. Yeah. yeah. yeah well, just every, every time I hear functional alcoholic, it makes me, these are mutually exclusive terms, you know? True. Yeah. You got so some work during done. during the day, yeah, I was, I got some work done during the day, but at night I couldn't wait to go home and just get completely inebriated to just mm. cancel out all the pain, all the insecurity about who I was and am I enough for this role at the church, never feeling worthy enough to be a pastor, feeling the shame of I am bad and broken. And then the cycle was perpetuated. The shame cycle was perpetuated with my drinking, with all the remorse and not being perfect and 
it just, it was a bad place. And the best thing that ever happened to me was rock bottom when my husband gave me an ultimatum Mm. to go to rehab because that's where I finally hitting rock bottom for me was the humiliation and shame of being in rehab. That was Mm. what I needed to change. Mm. That consequence is what I needed to stop drinking and then find my true self. And I found my true self when I got emotionally healthy, unpacked my baggage, and really discovered bringing the Enneagram back in. Like, there's nothing wrong with me for being a peacemaker. (laughs) It's not a weakness. It's actually something that God loves and wants and desires and created me to be. And I bring such great balance to Jimmy, my husband, and to our ministry when I am my true self. So my healing journey, I'll be seven years sober, November 2022, and I have devoted myself to studying this disease of addiction that snuck up on me and I did not see it coming and trying to make people and the world aware that it can happen to any of us. Something I want to say, and I'd love for you to speak into this, Ian, you said earlier, you merged with the whole church. And so nines don't just merge always with one person. You merge with the whole entity. Can you talk about that a little bit, Ian? I mean, for a nine, it's like sometimes people think, I I believe they think, oh, I just merged with this person. But no, you took on the whole church as your identity. Yes. Well, this gets into subtypes a little bit. Sexual nines tend to merge with individuals. Mm -hmm. Okay. Social nines can merge with the group, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. a that's a big deal for social nines. Mm-hmm. When we start to talk about self-preservation nines, they start to kind of merge with uh, sort of self-comfort. And mm-hmm. though, just remember that the the defense mechanism for nines is narcotization, right? It's numbing, and it's numbing the unacknowledged, unexpressed anger, but also the desires that keep bubbling up under the surface, right? This desire to be whole, this desire to be heard. And so they're pushing it down and they're doing it through narcotizing. And that could be alcohol, that could be drugs, that could be sex, that could be food, that could be exercise, that could be romance novels, that could be Netflix, that could Mm. be whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. Anything to keep it out of their awareness so that the inner peace and the outer peace are maintained. Another way they can do this is they, it's called siphoning. So like when the nine gets close to something that really matters, they can just turn the flame down so wow. they can diminish desire as a defense to the pain of not getting their own needs met. Wow. Okay. So yeah. So this, Numbing narcotization, the major defense mechanism for nines is like a really big deal. And I'm a recovering drug addict and alcoholic. I, I'm, you know, I'm a graduate of rehab. So I get the whole, you know, the, I, well, I can't say I, I understand the journey. I do, I do know that rehab is the most awful place to do. The, I mean, it's the most beautiful place in the world to do great, hard, awful work. You know, I also, experienced it as one of the most grace-filled places I've ever been and found so much healing in the in the circle of other people on this journey. I was writing the other day about, you know, sometimes, like, I just believe everybody's an addict. I don't think anybody is not an addict. And that's a Gerald May thing. I know you quote Gerald May. Gerald May would say that 
to be human is to be addicted and mm. to be addicted is to stand in need of grace. And of course, he was a genius. I mean, Gerald May, good night, Addiction and Grace, amazing book for people who haven't had a chance to read it. However, it seems to me that we live in an addictive culture. It doesn't matter to me if you're addicted to approval-seeking, pleasure-seeking, drugs, alcohol, gambling, you know, I mentioned sex, watching porn while your family's asleep, whatever. I mean, there's such the list is endless of these mm -hmm. attachments. And until people, it's not just drug addicts and alcoholics who have to face their addiction. It's freaking everybody. And, and oh, until they yeah, sort I of believe that. And I, I do believe that, you know, the 12 steps are a pretty good way to figure it out, mm -hmm. to get healthy as a, as a human being. I'm talking to Irene Rollins, the author of the new book, Reframe Your Shame, Experience Freedom from What Holds You Back. We're already into the book because the book talks so much about addictions, about recovery. It talks a lot about this journey to self-awareness, to overcoming those patterns of thinking, feeling, and behaving that, that hold us back from becoming the highest expression of who we are. What from your perspective, and maybe I'll hit on it a little bit, but I know you it, this, what don't people understand about addictions? People don't understand that it's a mental health issue. People don't understand that it is a disease. I didn't wake up in the morning and say, hey, I want to wreck my family. You know, the person who gets the <laughs> DUI doesn't like yeah, wake up and right. say, yeah, I want to traumatize my kids and, you know, right, yeah, go, yeah. go to rehab and deal with all this shame and hurt people, the people I love. It isn't a choice. And I think a lot of that send shaming messages towards people struggling with addiction don't realize that it's not a choice once your, your brain gets hijacked by whatever it is. So, yes, we make choices leading up to that. But when we aren't aware of the slippery slope of addiction, the signs, the warning signs, our susceptibility, our genetics and the role our, you know, family history plays into it. When we're unaware, any of us can fall into it because like you were mentioning earlier, like we all have hurts. We've all dealt with grief, you know, abandonment, rejection, all of those emotions. We all have hangups, things that can become hangups in our lives, like shame. Uh, there's so many things that can be hangups. Our anger can be hangups, a hangup that even unforgiveness can go into that. And all of those things, if we're not dealing with them, they can become habits. And those habits can be, like you said, any form of addiction to a substance, but it can be to a person. If we're addicted to a person, our value, our worth, oh my gosh, I don't feel good unless I'm in a relationship or unless I'm in a relationship with this one person that we've idolized. And back to the Enneagram, for me, I merged with Jimmy, right? So my self-esteem was completely in how he felt about me. I merged with the church. How did the church feel about me? That's how I felt about myself. As long mm. as the church felt pleased with Irene as a pastor's wife and what I was doing, I was good. So you can imagine how when I got stuck in the cycle of addiction, how shame led me to suicidal ideations because I had no self-esteem because I was so worried about what everyone else would think about me. Man, if you're, if you're a pastor in a church and you need people to love you, you're in a bad situation. Somebody's always going to be disappointed in you or with you. So Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, we, 
you know, I've been a pastor before and what you realize when you get older and older is you have actually tethered yourself to a community to work out your family of origin issues. And now you have 300 or Mm 3000 siblings and parents in the room. And every time you get up to talk, man, everything underneath the surface is I'm working out a drama. A drama that was never resolved in the past. I never resolved it. And now I'm trying to work it out with wow. the people mm-hmm. in the room or the people in the, you know, and until you realize this is not going to actually ever work. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. this, will, this will never lead to anything but misery. It's not going to resolve the past. It's just going right. to you know, perpetuate it in the present. That's pretty tough. Th- that's what our spouses are for. This is one of the messages of Jimmy and I's ministry. It's like, come on, let's start at the marriage because mm. your spouse is your blueprint for growth. Your spouse is the one when, you know, we actually unknowingly choose our spouses to work out that childhood drama stuff, that family of origin stuff. So what I was missing in my childhood, I found a Jimmy Rollins who was the complete opposite. I was attracted to him, wanted to be with him for all of those reasons that he is a seven and an eight so that I could resolve all of these things from my childhood. He Mm. brought security financially. He brought anything I didn't have. I didn't have, wasn't assertive in my childhood. I want, he was assertive. But then what ends up happening is we, I resented him for all of the things that we were different. The things that drew me to him were the fact that we were different yet. I resented him for so long. And it wasn't until we went on this Enneagram journey, healing together and counseling um, Imago therapies, the type of therapy we did, mm-hmm. and began to resolve our childhood issues together as a couple. And he, we were part of healing one another. And then emotional intelligence comes in. Now I'm empathetic towards his struggles, his wounds from his childhood. And now I can care for them differently versus trigger him and vice versa. But when pastors, when we get up there and we're trying to do it and live this out from the pulpit, it's it's a dangerous situation. And mm-hmm. so one of our messages to pastors and leaders is please get emotionally healthy, figure out who you are and who you are not, and be okay with that. Mm-hmm. No, you're not because you don't have to be everything to everyone mm-hmm. and then and have a, a healthy marriage. Then oh, go lead yeah. out of that. <laughs> okay, so I'm I, okay, so I'm just going to lean into you for a second, and so I'm going to ask you sure. to clarify something. I'm not going to disagree, mm-hmm. but I'm just going to lean into you for a second. Yeah, please. Is it really helpful to view marriage through the lens of two equals one? And the reason I say <laughs> this, especially to a nine, <laughs> uh, is like, isn't the point the journey of differentiation? So I would say, just being honest now. Mm-hmm. That two equals one could be a disaster. And so many marriages fall into the disaster of two equals one. It's like you complete me, like the two of us together equal one, or is it two whole? Just that, am I making sense? Like, yes. Talk, talk yes. to us about that. Absolutely. So everything my husband does as a visionary, it's always about a conversation. So two equals one is meant to be a conversation so we can break it down and talk about it. And look, our church name was I-5 and it it was to have an evangelistic conversation with someone. But anyway, that's a whole nother story. So two equals one is two completely different, separate human beings 
with completely different giftings, talents, backgrounds, wounds, and coming together as one. And the coming together is the leave and cleave, what the Bible says that we are to leave our families of origin and become one with our spouse intimately. So that's the one. Then coming together as one is leveraging your differences. So as we heal together, now we leverage our strengths and weaknesses. So like, and let me give you a picture. So a codependent, unhealthy, two going into one, right? Becoming one is where Jimmy is assertive and that's, I'm a nine. So I don't want to deal with conflict and things like that. So I lean on his assertiveness, his ability to deal with conflict and I never grow. But if we're two equals one, like really doing this work together to become one, I actually look at his strength of assertiveness. He challenges, I don't become defensive nine. I grow in my nine and I allow him to challenge me as my blueprint for growth and I become stronger in my assertiveness. So he's not dragging me along the journey of life. We've now become one because I have almost taken on his strengths. Does that make sense? Oh, that's kind of sure does. That's been our journey. It's been fun. <laughs> okay, now I got some clarity because it, it, it initially I was a little bit like, okay, we're talking about all this differentiation and relationships and not merging, but you know, obviously it requires a little explanation. Like, yeah, two equals one doesn't mean a merging. You know, it no. it, it it equals it's something else altogether. So everybody, I'm listening or I'm speaking with Irene Rollins. Wonderful conversation, author of Reframe Your Shame, Experience Freedom from What Holds You Back. And I just want to close with this because it, it obviously is upfront in the title of the book, Reframe Your Shame. What does it mean? What does that mean? I think everybody would like to reframe their shame. So what does that mean? It means anything that has happened to you in your life that you've experienced that you uh, have looked at as bad. Because remember, shame says, I am bad. If we look at it, we make a decision to try to look at it from a different point of view, a different perspective. We have the wonderful opportunity of it being not self-defeating, but it being something we can learn and grow from. So Irene is not bad because she is an alcoholic, which is what I believed for so long and why I wouldn't admit it. I would not admit I was an alcoholic because I felt like I was bad if I did. But when I reframe that as I'm brave because I went to rehab, like when I admit my weaknesses, God's given me the grace to walk out a program of recovery. When I stopped holding on to that denial that I didn't have a problem with alcohol, I was able to actually get free. So reframing is really just such a wonderful tool for just cognitive development for people in addiction. Anything you've experienced, any failure, mess up, which we're all going to do because we're all human, uh, being able to reframe it and trying to find, which is part of my nine. The wonderful thing about the nines are I love to see the good in something. Like I would like to find the good out of every situation. And when we use the tool of reframing, perhaps the thing that we thought was going to kill us, defeat us, can become our greatest ministry can help other people. And I have found that by reframing the shame of my alcoholism, I've been able to help save the lives of many people. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting you should say is I, the other day someone in an interview asked me, well, 
how do you define recovery? And I was like, mm. well, here's one metaphor. I said, you know, in The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, there's this amazing ghost character in a conversation with an angel. And the mm-hmm. ghost the ghost man has a, a reptile sitting on his shoulder that keeps telling him that he can't live without him. So the reptile is saying, you can't live without me. You can't live without me. And the man knows that this thing is not helping him, is actually destroying him, but he can't let it go, right? Like mm-hmm. he is choosing ruin over change, as, as Auden once called it. And so this angel is confronting him. The angel says to the guy, you know, I can kill that thing, right? You, you know that. Why don't you let me kill it? And he's, the, now the reptile is going, no, don't let him kill it. Don't let him kill me. Don't let him kill me. And the guy's going, I can't, I want to, but I do, you know. So to me, the reptile obviously is analogous to a, an addiction, right? And the addiction mm-hmm. is just whispering in your ear, you cannot live without me. You will not, you can't live without me. And yet, you know, the angels stand there going, you want me to kill it? I can kill it. <laughs> Right? right and we're like we're like okay kill it no don't kill it kill it no, don't don't no, kill it you know yeah and, and, and so eventually this ghost man says okay kill it and it's this very painful moment you know it's like he screams the reptile screams it's painful but yet what happens in the end of the story is that the reptile turns into this beautiful white steed that the mm. guy mounts and the man mm. the ghost actually becomes a physical man like he goes from being this vaporous ghost to a whole person he jumps Mm. on the steed that was formerly the addiction that now is made beautiful and he rides off in joy and i said that's that's my journey of recovery right it's like and and it's an ongoing process i'm not saying that's you know i you know in rehab i jumped on the horse and there i go right i fall i fall off the horse a lot you know but Mm -hmm. That transformation is just in my mind so much of what recovery is is about. Yeah. Like that story of of recovery, I love that, it. That's available to anybody, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. because everybody's in recovery from something, you know. Something, and yeah. You know what? Can I add here? I always teach people this whenever I'm speaking at churches and around the country. I always say that if the definition of recovery is to return to the, a natural state of mind, soul, and health to recover something that has been lost or stolen. If that's the definition, then that applies to us all, mm. right? So now we're all working on a hurt, hang-up, or habit that we need to recover from, right? So now that we know that and we're aware of it and we're okay with that, if we're not working on our recovery, we're working on relapse, period. Amen. Yep. So we are constantly, have every single day, mm. I'm working on my recovery. Mm-hmm. I got it. Well, that's so beautiful. Everybody, Irene Rollins, Anthony, hit the applause button. <laughs> I think we need that's one. That's some cheering. Where's the cheering? There it goes. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, I love it. Well, Anthony, we got to use that more, okay? Because it, it, it just does not get enough play, man. Oh. All right. So, Irene, again, author of Reframe Your Shame, Experience Freedom from What Holds You Back, Enneagram 9, Doing the Work on the Journey of Recovery. Tell everybody where they learn more about you and all the wonderful things you're doing. Sure. IreneRollins.com, super simple. And two equals one, spelt out, is our marriage ministry, two equals one.com. And you can follow me um, at Irene Rollins on Instagram and all the grams, all the socials and 
You can follow Marriage Equation. So it's at Marriage Equation on Instagram for all of our two equals one. And yeah, it's my husband's kind of fun and cool too. Trust me, he's he actually does all my social media for me. Um, he can be, he's at <laughs> I am Jimmy Rollins. And you can buy my book anywhere where books are sold. Amazon's one click and leave a review, please. <laughs> all right. Yes. All right. Well, Irene, we're going to have you back on. And uh, I want to talk mm-hmm. to you more about the journey of recovery and the journey of healing from addictions because it's such a giant piece of my story. And, yeah. and it would be cool to spend a little bit more time on it. Anthony, did you have fun? I did have fun. It's good Ooh. to see you. Good to be with you. This was a good Thank morning, man. Thank you so man. much for yeah. having me. Typology Tribe, remember these words. May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. May you have rest. Until next time.